welcome back, everybody, to the Paperless Federalist. Uh, I'm Justin. And I'm Carrie. All right, Carrie. And uh, for those of those uh, out there who are just joining us, maybe perhaps for the first time, uh, what we try and do here in the Paperless Federalist is uh, to go through each Federalist paper and just take a look and try and break through all the, the uh, barriers that might be there for people. Um, I understand, and I think, Carrie, you'd agree that uh, a lot of the language is the language of the time, and it's not necessarily how people speak today. So we're trying to crack through uh, some of the uh, inhibitors to people to understanding what the Federalist Papers are all about. Um, we are and, trying to demystify the papers. Yes. De- demystify. So uh, with that away, uh, per our usual normal course of business here, uh, we'll let Kerry uh, be the summarizer-in-chief, as he always is. And take it away, Kerry. <laughs> Very good. Before we go into the summary itself, I would like to give a shout-out for anybody who is bizarre enough of mind to be joining us starting with paper 22 would, if you are such a person please message us to say <laughs> why it is that 22 was your magic number like that's the one i gotta listen to that said <laughs> paper 22 well there's really i'm gonna say four main points although i'm gonna feel free to add or subtract to that as i remember more or forget ones that i should have remembered all right that's very nice sounds good (laughs) so the first big one is uh so he's laying out basically the four main reasons why the constitution needs to be uh ratified and why it's a a much needed replacement to the articles of Confederation. the first one is a need for a nationwide regulation of commerce we've talked about this prior episodes how the states each have their own tariffs and trade rules um and it really disrupts a lot of trade between the states their their taxes and uh tariffs are inconsistent and it sort of stands in the way of having a national uh, economy um the second major point is the need for a universal military authority a national army with uh national power to muster troops i wouldn't go so far as to say conscription national conscription he doesn't really raise that but it, you know it, it might be in the cards down the road but more importantly he, hamilton's just arguing that there needs to be one national army um that's in charge of all of the you know all the troops that are mustered because right now there's a bunch of different state armies or state militias that are competing against each, each other for manpower, and they're sort of auctioning, you know, they're they're bidding against each other in this sort of manpower op- auction, and it's really depriving all states of the ability to muster an army. Um, and then secondarily, uh, revisiting another theme from the past, the states who, who are let the least in danger of direct military conflict um, are not pulling their weight. The ones who you know, are the most in danger of a British landing right on their shore, um, feel the greatest need to muster armies, whereas the other states that are sort of the backwaters of the military campaigns um, don't contribute the, the commensurate amount. Those are the two biggest ideas. And then there's two, I'd say, medium or lesser ideas. Um, one of those is that... <clears throat> He, Hamilton talks about how he feels that the new constitution is needed to effectuate this right of equal suffrage, this right of um, a person's vote in one state is, vers- is the same value as a person's vote in another state. So 
popular vote, more or less. Um, the Articles of Confederation um, were very much based around one state, one vote. A state like Rhode Island or Delaware would have the same one vote as a larger state like New York or Virginia. Uh, and, you know, Hamilton takes issue with that. He says, look, you know, we shouldn't give a lot more weight to the vote of someone from a smaller state, which is unusual. I'm sure we'll explore this when we do our discussion because the Constitution still is not completely a popular vote. It's sort of a hybrid system. And in his final point, and again, it's not as big as this two main points of National Army and National Commerce Regulation, is the need of a Supreme Court of the land, a national court system, to decide disputes. <clears throat> again, hearkening back to the Arms of Confederation, um, disagreements between states uh, and uh, high-level controversies would be submitted directly to the Confederation Congress. And when you have effectively a veto power uh, by any single state for major changes, and when um, the states themselves are the ones who could be involved in a dispute that's submitted to the National uh, the Confederation Congress, it sort of undermines the ability of that Congress to you know, just effectively decide matters between states and other high-level questions. And in addition to that, even though the members of the Confederation Congress could be and very, you know, very likely are having a large percentage of lawyers in it, um, they're primarily politicians. And you know, one could skeptically ask whether they're going to be using only judicial temperament and judgment to decide matters and won't uh, let politics creep in uh, on occasion. So again, the four main issues, number one, national commerce regulation, number two, single national army, uh, and then taking it down one step, uh, pop, uh, popular sovereignty instead of sovereignty by the states, and then finally a national supreme court. And that's pretty much what it boils down to. Uh, okay, four simple points, but a lot we could discuss. All right, well let's uh, let's blow through the first one real quick because I don't know that there's a whole lot of debate, and I think uh, he makes a couple, and he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it either. And that's the idea of a need for. Um, free-flowing commerce in and among the states um, and and sort of a national uh, federal regulation of commerce to promote commerce within uh, mm -hmm. the union. And there's a couple points he, he points out. He goes, one, you know, other nations aren't going to want to, or they're not going to want to deal with us if if they think that they enter mm -hmm. into a promise with us, with, uh, with the national government, but then find, come to find out that the national government really doesn't have any real power. Uh, why would why would they enter into some sort of compact with the United States at that point if they don't if they don't and you know give away or give uh, concessions in a in in a, in a uh, compact with the United States uh, only to find out that because of the discord and disarray amongst the states that that the national uh, promises made at the national level aren't worth anything why would anybody mm -hmm. why would any nation state ever enter into any kind of treaty? Or financial compact or a trade trade uh, uh, enterprise with the United States on a national level. If if the the, the nation's word is not any good, uh, so to speak, is one point he makes. Uh, the other one is, you know, another reason for them to not have incentive to not do it. That is, again, if the nation's word isn't any good and the states are fighting amongst themselves uh, when it comes to commerce, you know, why not just go straight to the source and make a deal with South Carolina or with Georgia or with New York? Why mess around with? Uh, you know the national body 
uh, if you can kind of cut to the chase and go and have a deal directly with the state that actually has the resources you want to deal with and deal in, you know, there's no need to deal with the uh, the federal system. So um, those were two, uh, I think, points that he he brings out and tries to to demonstrate that why uh, a national, uh, a stronger federal power um, that could negotiate on behalf of the country as a whole mm-hmm. would be when everybody would be better serve if that was the case. And then that's kind of what I get out of it. Did you see anything else there? Oh, I agree with the, the, the strength of those arguments, mm-hmm. obviously yeah, it's hard to disagree with them. But one thing I forgot to mention in my initial summation is this uh, 22 again is a paper that's written only by Hamilton. This is not one of those that was re- co-written with yeah. Madison and Hamilton together. Mm-hmm. And you could always – I'm starting to detect this pattern with Hamilton papers uh, as opposed to ones that are Madison or Madison plus Hamilton is Hamilton loves to always pose things in a way of like only presenting the strengths of an argument mm-hmm. and not the weaknesses. Mm-hmm. He always tries to pose it like, well – yeah, you could agree with me, or you could be an idiot. You could choose. <laughs> you know, you could choose either one. But you know, there's my, my position, and there's a stupid position. He, Hamilton does not really stress the opposing viewpoints, and I think that's probably something that, that ticked off anti-federalists on the commerce clause question. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm sorry, not the commerce. I'm giving away where I'm going in my mind here. Yeah. On the commerce question, these points he's putting forward about. It's you know there's benefits to having a strong national commerce regulation ability, of course there's benefits to it, but um, you know we've got some experience with where the commerce clause has gone since then, and yeah. you know our argument that could easily be brought against Hamilton is to what extent is this a slippery slope? I mean we've gone from a period where Hamilton's main purpose was to regulate commerce as commerce, mm-hmm. but and, and that was it. But since then, the Commerce Clause has been used to get give na- the store give authority to the national government over yeah. a broad ra- array of issues, and so, up to include the Affordable Care Act, which is not yes. really commerce per se. Yes, but well, it couple, deals with commerce. A couple other instances in which the Commerce Clause has been used, obviously, I won't mean obviously, but just uh, for the listener in case. They haven't gone through law school or read a constitutional law textbook recently. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, there's the uh, taking down of Jim Crow. Uh, the Commerce Clause mm-hmm. played a large, large role in that. And somebody oh, yes. might, might say, "Heart of Atlanta Hotel." Heart of Atlanta Hotel case, yes. And that was the one where there was a sole proprietor, uh, sole hotel owner in the middle of Georgia, uh, I think near Atlanta. Um, and I don't know for sure where he was at, but he was in Georgia and. And he, that particular hotel owner, and this is in the, uh, you know, he wanted to discriminate, didn't want to have anybody who was African-American stay at his hotel. Uh, Mm -hmm. The federal government says, you can't do that anymore. We're not going to be like that as a nation. And he said, well, wait a minute, I'm not, you know, how are you going to write a law that's going to affect me and tell me who I, who I can Mm -hmm. choose to serve, who I cannot choose to serve uh, and let into my uh, establishment uh, for overnight guests. And and I don't affect interstate commerce. That was his argument. I'm a, I'm a one mm-hmm. one person. I'm not. I'm, I only have one place of business. It's in this one state. I'm not multi-state, 
I, I, how am I affecting interstate commerce? And the, the court went through this uh, very detailed analysis about how African-Americans at the time, they had their own travel guide as to where they could go, what cities would welcome them, what particular mm-hmm. hotels would or wouldn't welcome them uh, before they set out on the road or where they could go eat at certain restaurants or at gas stations. It would be um, available to them as they traveled across mm-hmm. the country. And by n- you know not opening his door uh, to a particular race, he was affecting mm-hmm. how that race would move in and amongst the several states and thereby affect interstate commerce. And that's how the rationale of that case was. Another one, um, uh, the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Act, uh, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. was passed during the, uh, the Bush administration, um, uh, George W. Bush administration. Uh, that uh, was premised, uh, the Congress wrote that on their ability to 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 write this ban, this partial birth abortion ban, was premised on the idea that the instrumentalities used to perform abortions travel in amongst the several states through commerce, mm-hmm. and therefore they could regulate uh, and 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 write a law. And the dissent in that uh, opinion, I believe, was was fairly upset that no one addressed whether or not Congress had the ability to. Um, to even make the law in the first place, uh, as mm-hmm. I recall. So those are a couple other examples in where, um, you, you know, uh, here Hamilton's thinking of commerce, the sale of goods, right? Uh, the wealth mm-hmm. of nations, right? And and 200 plus years later, we're talking about, you know, abortions or hotels or, uh, you yeah. know. Because re- commerce was a different civil thing rights. Yeah. So I mean, you have this, because I think in the Hamiltonian mindset, if he was going to build a, map in his mind of what he thinks of when he thinks of capital C commerce like the stuff that really affects the nation as a whole Mm -hmm. he's probably thinking of manufactured goods from Europe Britain and France coming to America across the sea and then landing at American ports and then working their way into the interior Mm -hmm. and being able to do that instead of being stopped at the ports and being taxed every step of the way similarly American foodstuffs and raw materials making their way back to the ports, yeah. traveling back over to Europe and being sold. And that was probably a, a relatively small, well, not small, but it wasn't the majority of the commerce back then. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff people could do and they wouldn't be involved in what I'll call, again, going to call capital C commerce, you know, yeah. this big, you know, trade that not only goes to the next town, the next state, but has international consequences. You could probably, there's probably a lot of professions that you could practice your entire life and you'd only have very limited involvement in international commerce. If you're a you know, local blacksmith, you know, a local farmer, um, a lot of the stuff you're going to be making not, was probably not going to leave the country, maybe not even the state. Yeah. Whereas compared to now, you know, you think about how the world we live in now and there's probably mm-hmm. very, very few, you know, uh, People who, one way or the other, don't whose goods don't enter the stream of you know capital C commerce. Yeah, I mean, even if you're a small business person, if you're on Etsy or if you're on eBay, mm-hmm. you're on the internet. Mm-hmm. You're visible anywhere in the world, and so because of that. Yeah, and actually that brings up another point. Not regulated. I'm sorry. There's a lot more that you're regulated under that because there's a lot more that's yeah commerce. In the interstate sense, you know, and not to go too far, I just love going off on a different trails. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, in the modern day, now you mentioned the, the internet and the sale of goods, and you can available anywhere in the world. I mean, that's you get in a whole kinds of situations. That if you start selling things internationally and into Europe, and and being subjected to, um, you know, 
um, well, the European Union regulations on things, because uh, their 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 definitions of things are are a lot different. Um, I know that when yeah. it comes when it comes to beer and what qualifies as a beer uh, is mm-hmm. is rather specific. I remember that from my yeah. prior studies in the EU. Um, so okay, well, not to go too too far off uh, the paths, but um, that's the. Uh, Okay, so from here, then we talked about anything else you want to say about commerce, or we? Uh, I might jump back to it a little bit okay. on uh, when we get into military power, but let's go okay. forward into military power. All right, let's go. Uh, so the next thing he talks about uh, is the power to raise armies, and and you touched on this a little bit, and Hamilton was talking about how the different states um, were were contributing men uh, towards the the national army effort, uh, and, mm-hmm. and and they all had their quotas to meet. <clears throat> And but the ones that were perhaps at greater risk uh, were much more diligent in making sure that they were contributing their their men um, mm-hmm. to, to the uh, army effort. But uh, the those who were who were a little further away, a little more insulated and isolated uh, states, didn't feel the need to necessarily contribute the bodies to that national effort in the same way. Um, and they also didn't contribute the money in, in the same way. Um, but he said, you know, money can be made up after the fact. But, uh, you know, either the bodies are there and they're trained and they're well regimented or they're not. Uh, so if people aren't there, it makes things uh, pretty hard to, to, to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. well, what else did you take away here? Well, uh, oh, just to go a layer deeper into what mm-hmm. the, the, the summer layer. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Specifically, what Hamilton was complaining of in this aspect, in the states bidding against each other, is sort of an international commerce or uh, interstate commerce of manpower. Yeah. Of, you know, the different states who are at the greatest risk felt like, okay, we need as many people to be a part of our army as possible. We got British troops on our shore, mm-hmm. so we're going to pay a little bit more than the next state over. You know, uh, we're going to offer better benefits, better pay, etc. And so the, the different so- men who were volunteering to serve in the different armies and different militias would take a look around and see who would pay the best, and they would go there, causing the other states to feel like, well, we better up our pay. And it would sort of become this slow-motion auction or of states bidding against each other to be paying the most money for a given soldier. Um, and it made the, it harder for all of them to uh, to mount an army, to, mm-hmm. to field an army. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I found interesting about that, just to go back to commerce one more time and then move on, is this process of states bidding against each other um, and you know each one trying to get the best deal, the best individual outcome, but then hurting the, all of them by all of them doing this. Mm-hmm. Of course, it doesn't happen anymore regarding the military. We have a national military. And our, and our different um, state, you know, National Guard reserves for each state, again, is nationally regulated. It's all under the federal pay scale. So that's not a problem anymore for the United States. Mm-hmm. What's funny is that problem of the states bidding against each other and hurting each other mm-hmm. is happening in commerce now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had that Amazon headquarters. Oh, yeah. Well, it's still going on. Yeah, it's still um, going on. Mm-hmm. That's just the latest example of, you know, international – companies go around to the different states and go hunting for the best deal of mm-hmm. who's going to give us the best tax breaks, who's going to give us the best subsidies. Oh, yeah. and, and it's funny that the thing that he complained about in the military aspect, states bidding against each other, that's fixed in the military capacity. 
but it's very much a problem for states in the economic realm now yeah. where states are always bidding each other, undermining their own tax bases and you know transferring a lot of the burden onto their individual taxpayers instead of businesses mm-hmm. in a race uh, to get <clears throat> factories located in their state. I just thought it was interesting. It is. Um, you know, I, I didn't think about that. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, Columbus specifically uh, in Ohio – but I think Ohio in general also is very friendly mm-hmm. to insurance companies. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why there are so many uh, large, you know, the, I think every major insurance company has a, has a presence in Columbus, Ohio. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. to I don't know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me to find out that a lot of uh, the cities and or states' uh, policies towards those insurance companies are quite friendly. Uh, probably, mm-hmm. probably to lure them there. Uh, well, that's why, you like New Jersey as a state. I mean, everybody's incorporated mm-hmm. in New Jersey, right? <laughs> Regardless of where they're Delaware? at. Delaware. Delaware. I'm sorry, you're right. Let me start that over. So, yeah, Delaware. Delaware, uh, I think, is the state. Um, I was like, unless New Jersey no, no, no. a major state. No, I'm sorry. I got my got my uh, states mixed up there. Um, no, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it is Delaware. Though. I was like, I thought it was Delaware. It is yeah, Delaware. Delaware. Yeah. 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 Um, good for. Corporate, Incor- article, corporate uh, liability, general yeah, liability. Yeah, and that's why everyone is uh, not everyone, but a lot of a lot of corporations are incorporated through Delaware. So whether they have a physical presence there or not. Yeah. Um, so let's see what else. Um, that was interesting, and I, I'm trying to think of. I imagine that kind of probably plays out still, even somewhat with the military. I would think, like you know, the locating of bases and and. Uh, sharing of costs between the states and the federal government to get bases or to come and be stationed in some spots. I think or... that's a different problem, I feel. That's that's not a problem of lack of national authority. That's lobbying. Mm-hmm. That's lobbying to try to get the maximum you know, benefit mm-hmm. um, to your state, but it's at the national level. The mm-hmm. you know, the national politicians are the ones who make that decision. Okay. I, mean, I feel like that decision, that problem in the modern day is pretty much non-existent now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one national army – there's one national pay scale. Mm-hmm. It, in my opinion, that problem probably, looking at it from a historical perspective, I think I feel like that problem probably continued even after the Constitution. Yeah. Up through the end of the Civil War. Yeah. And then that was it. Yeah. Um, because in the Civil War, they had a very similar problem of because again, uh, if you Civil War history, they had the the national army, the, the the regular troops, as they were called, uh-huh. but then you know the majority of the army was not made up of regular troops because pre-war there was a very small core of regular army. They had to mm-hmm. massively increase the size of the army for the Civil War, and so they mainly did that through state volunteer regiments the mustered un- by the states. The union and army. When you when you're talking there was about a whole host of problems going on with that. Okay, I mean the main one was similarly. Um, it wasn't so much the pay and benefits, mm-hmm. but as the war went on and the draft was instituted in the different states, people, rich people were able to, wealthy individuals were able to pay for substitutes to take their place. Or states, in order to not have to draft people, they would pay people, pay men bounties to volunteer. So mm-hmm. that's like a sign-on bonus. So mm-hmm. if you volunteer to join a, a regiment, you might get what's equal to three months' pay or something like that. Okay. So then there was a there became a problem of bounty jumpers who would join an army, join a regiment in one state, 
desert a month or two into their service, go to another state, volunteer again, and they would just make a ton of money volunteering over and over again and deserting over and over again. Okay. Now, everything you just said about the Civil War and the Army, were you referencing in reference to the Union Army, or was that also for the Confederate Army? Um, it was more strongly for the Union Army, especially the, inst- the instance of bounty jumping. Uh-huh. But the Confederate regiments were also organized by the states as okay. well. As well, you know the uh, and so their primary law. Lo- sometimes they would be more have a, a state loyalty that would compete with their national loyalty, the Confederate Confederation in general. Okay, all right. But, yeah, it, they were state organized. But the problem, the problem of uh, troops being incentivized by money mm-hmm. and rewards to join a certain state uh, military institution or military mm-hmm. regiment was a bigger problem in the North, in my opinion, than the South, because the North had more money to give such incentives. The South, as the war went on, didn't. They would just have to draft people with you know no, no carrot, all stick. Is you're going to join us, you're going to go to jail. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but then after the Civil War, you know, the, the size of the military shrank back down to the regulars again. Uh-huh. The next major conflict that came up, uh, with the major conflicts that came up after that, that required influx of troops, it was mainly organized uh, along state lines. And not, I'm sorry, along more along national lines. Yeah. And uh, especially as you get into the 20th, 20th century conflicts, um, they stopped, they tried to get away from recruiting from states and towns so much not so much for that reason but for the reason of if you would have a regiment that would get involved in a really uh, intense conflict you might have an entire town's worth of young men wiped out in an afternoon yeah and they thought well better to spread that across the nation than to just hit in one town really hard so i i don't i don't think that's a problem anymore mm-hmm. um i think that stopped that's that started to become less a problem after the civil war okay all right. Well, then let's jump into the next point uh, that Hamilton talks about, which is the equal suffrage among the states. Uh, he, he takes real issue with the idea that that tiny Rogue Island would have as much say as as the great state of New York um, <laughs> uh, or Massachusetts or Connecticut. Right. Those, those guys with their rowboat and Rogue Island, as you previously pointed out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, can't be trusted. And they, they have the same. Same ability to vote here under the Confed- uh, Articles of Confederation is is uh, as much weight as as New York, regardless of the difference in size and population. And uh, he feels that is just not right. Once again, I think it's humorous to take a step back and look at Hamilton objectively, because mm-hmm. all arguments of his in this paper, to an extent, but especially this one, you they just seem very self-serving. Yeah. Every one of these, he's arguing in favor of his own arguments and his own interests. You know, mm-hmm. he very much wants a strong nation, so commerce gets you there. He had bad experiences with state militias and state, you know, organized militaries mm-hmm. in the Revolutionary War. But this one especially, he's from New York. Yeah. He's from the state <laughs> of New York. You know, if he's going to, you know, from where he is writing, looking at the future, yeah. if he is going to hold a position of legislative power, i.e., become a congressman or senator uh, a representative or senator it's going to be from new york a large state so of course yeah. he's arguing that it should be by population yeah one wonders how if his uh if his and if his beliefs would be so stalwart still if he were from 
Rhode Island or Delaware. I don't know. And I love to ro- argue against Rhode Island as much as anyone, but <laughs> this is this is where you feel like it gets particularly self-serving. Where someone might say, "Oh, come on, yeah, you just want, you're just from New York, so of course you're going to argue for that." Yeah, and the, the thing he says here, it, the operation here is this is quote it says, its operation contradicts the fundamental maxim of of Republican government, which requires that the senses of the majority should prevail. Uh, and he just has. Mm-hmm. No, absolute, I don't know, maybe disdain is maybe too strong a word, but he really does not like the idea that all the states would have an equal voting power, um, regardless of the population. So Then uh, why, did, why is he okay with there being a Senate or an Electoral College then? I, mean, I can, know, he, yeah. <laughs> We're getting I mean, there, trust me. <laughs> the, fact that the Constitution has those things. The yeah. way he argues for this, you would think that the Constitution, which he's arguing for, is pure Greek city-state democracy mm-hmm. where everyone goes to the town square and throws their yes or no stone into a bowl and they count yeah. them up and that's how it goes. It's not. Yeah, the House of Representatives is based upon popular vote and populism, but the Senate is one is two per state and the Electoral College is... Well, when this was set up, though, remember, when the Constitution was set up, right, the senators mm-hmm. were elected by their uh, state legislatures, so it wasn't, it wasn't a popular... There's still two per state. Yeah, there were. Um, but as far as how they were elected, um, has shifted over time. Uh, yes, what, that's now, true. but that's that just makes it worse. Um, at least, at least modern day, you could argue that the people voted for the particular senators. But still, Rhode Island has two senators. California has two senators. Or back then, New York has two senators. Yeah. You know, if you would think if he if he felt so strongly about this. He would put in some language in the paper saying, well, of course, over time, we've got to really do something about the Senate thing yeah. where the tiniest of states has an equal representation in the Senate as the largest in both pockets. Okay. But he doesn't. But he acts like it's not even a thing. Let me go on. He goes on here. He goes, he goes, sophistry may reply that sovereigns are equal and that the majority of the votes of the states will be the majority of the confederated America. But this kind of logical uh, ledger – Ledgerman uh, will never count. Uh, Ledger domain. Ledger domain. Thank you. Uh, will never counteract the plain suggestions of justice and, co- justice and common sense. And it may happen that this majority of states is a small minority of the American people. Um, and he goes on. The uh, he he talks about the idea that maybe the larger states would have to, and and a larger portion of the population would have to subject themselves to the minority. Uh, viewpoint, um, and that this, those states would, um, after a while, would revolt from the idea of receiving the law from the smaller, is what he says. And so I, I you know, without commenting either way in, in the current day era, I bet you there are a lot of people in this country right now who could relate to that frustration that Hamilton is foreseeing, where the major- they're a part of the majority, and they're having to accept what the minority has brought upon them. uh in the in the modern era um and yet that's the system that hamilton set up with that being the electoral college or help set up um but he almost is arguing against the electoral college in a way here uh this idea that like you said it's you know the idea that the uh the majority would be have to succumb to the will of the minority um he seems to be he take a big issue with um. I feel like <laughs> he he oh he threw up this straw man 
Yeah. To, he threw up this easily, def, you know, this, this, this other side, the other side of this stupid position that's that's idiotic. So, of course, you know, pure majoritarian rule was the best. But he they've almost, been, you know, his thing is, they've previously argued against pure majoritarian rule. They talk about, like, and maybe it was Madison in an earlier paper as opposed to Hamilton. But I know that as, as, but as, as, as a collective in these papers, mm-hmm. we've talked about. How and I forget which author it was, and obviously it wasn't Jay because he's hardly around. So I'm going to bet it was Madison. <laughs> but um, well, they talked about the idea that you can't have uh, you know one person one vote on everything due to geography, and it just would never be it. It would fall in upon itself if, because it's unworkable, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it's just it's interesting here that he's he he takes such issue with the idea that. Um, I think it's a, yeah. another one of those times where you see that they're writing paper by paper. This is not one solid book. Yeah, where they're cohesive thoughts a united whole. I mean, yeah. they're bound together nowadays when they sell them at the bookstore. You read them online; yeah. they're all one big yeah. idea. The Federalist Papers, but there's not but a, literally at the time they were arguing paper by paper. Yeah, and they're well. You're right. I mean, here again, we're seeing a disunified theme. Uh, or disunified argument, uh, even. Um, I tell you, they're making their job hard for the anti-federalists since the federalists here keep shifting their their goalposts. I imagine responding to it from the anti-federalist position would be quite hard. <laughs> See, I, but I think it would be easier because my simple response well, would be not, not look principled, how disingenuous yeah. they're well, that, being. That's true. You know, look how slippery they're being. They're being slippery eels. A more honest debate, a more fair debate would be one that as you were suggesting, uh, a principle everyone shares. Yeah. In, in the United States, all the founding fathers seem to have this idea that, yes, generally, over time, the will of the majority should, the well-reasoned, deliberate will of the majority should mm-hmm. prevail. But concurrent with that, they seem to have this equally important value of the majority of a moment shouldn't be able to have radical shifts in the fundamental nature of the nation, Mm -hmm. there should be checks on that because sometimes the majority could get wacky, get crazy, do, you know, become mob rule, mob violence, Mm -hmm. and they could become not well-reasoned. And the the founding fathers had this very strong view in writing the Constitution of checks and balances of minority rights. That's what the whole of rights is about. Mm-hmm. That's what the Senate is about. That is what the Supreme Court later came to be about, is the idea of just because you're the majority, your rights are not unlimited. If you get to the two-thirds level, they can become a little bit more unlimited. Mm-hmm. But even then, you know, the whole Constitution is written around the idea of these two competing values. The majority should generally rule, but the minority should have an ability to check them and make them more deliberate in the decisions that they're making. Yes. And, and Hamilton doesn't really explore that very deeply at all. He basically alludes to it as an aside, acting like, oh, the minority could become our rulers. He's not crazy. But I think that he's framing it dishonestly there. And I think that's what the Anti-Federals would hit him hard on. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, A more honest critique, I feel yeah. like that would have been stronger for him is – the fact that for amendments and you know fundamental changes in the way that the mm-hmm. articles of the confederation confederation oh, yeah. work, it is unanimous. You mm-hmm. have to, you know, so one literally one state 
Rhode Island, or Delaware. One state can block everything. And I think that is much more preposterous and would strike mm-hmm. people as, okay, so this is a, ba- a balanced re- region, a balanced and reasoned approach to majority rule, but mm-hmm. still keeping minority rights intact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just uh, off of the, one of the um, points you were making about the protection of the minority rights uh, against the tyranny of the majority is often how it's phrased is I mean, you look and see, I, I, I don't know what the count was. It was 200 plus, I think, proposed amendments to the Constitution over the years. Uh, and, you know, one-tenth of those, have, have uh, if that has actually passed um, and actually been ratified as amendments. And the first 10 were right out of the gate. Boom. So yeah. it's not, <laughs> um, you know, the they've made it particularly difficult to alter that document. Um, it is a good thing. And, and oh yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree too. Um, and I know oftentimes people say, "Well, it's a living, breathing document, and it's meant to uh, change with the will of the people at time." And that's true. And I don't initially dispute that. But it's not—it's not, it's not a, a body of statutory law that can, mm-hmm. you know, be be switched back and forth um, so quickly. Um, well, and the Constitution, the the National Constitution, I yes. feel, is is meant to. Uphold our most most sake, you know, our highest ideals mm-hmm. that are almost universally held. You know, again, going to the concerns of the founding father. There's not just the founding fathers. They're not just the trends of the moment. They're not just something mm-hmm. that's like, oh, we think this is important. We should make it a constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I think I wish that law generally could be more like that. Because I've gone to a couple of ses- uh, legal seminars talking about how mm-hmm. so much has become turned into statutory law, so much has become criminalized mm-hmm. because something bad will happen, mm-hmm. uh, or something will, ha- you know, or someone thinks something's important, and they'll say, "Well, if I feel this is important, there should be a law." Mm-hmm. And, but the problem is, there's a lot of inadvertent consequences to that, of you know. Criminal punishments that in you know prior decades would not have been a, cr- a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot less flexibility on how to do things. Uh, I I like the na- the approach of the national constitution as, yeah. pro- as opposed to even state constitutions that are ha- much more prolific with their amendments. Well, and that can disrupt commerce, right? I mean, if you're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into something, and then the laws are you know. All of a sudden, boom, you're halfway through building whatever thing you're building. Uh, all of a sudden, the laws, uh, you're, it's illegal for you to do now what you've uh, wanted to do in the in the state that you wanted to do it in, Because even though you've already spent $100 million on building your mm-hmm. factory. Um, that can be a problem. So, uh, And it can disrupt a lot yeah, of, that goes a lot of commerce. Of you know? our, our, the commerce being international. Uh, yeah. You know, because the, the fact of it is when one country or a block of countries passes a law, you know, oftentimes the international companies, for ease of administration, will have to mm-hmm. comply with the most restrictive regime. Um, and there, there's a, a bunch of, uh, you know, I think privacy uh, rules, regulations, and statutes passed by the European Union late, yeah. late, lately yeah. that has inspired me and I'm sure most people to get a, uh, a proliferation of uh, notices from a bunch of online companies I deal with hmm. regarding my use of my data and everything, even mm-hmm. though I'm a non-European citizen. Yeah. Um, it's still, they're saying, well, here's how we're going to apply, apply this European rulings mm-hmm. into you, an American citizen. Yeah. Uh, it, again, it's one wonders what Hamilton would have to say about that, because on one hand, 
he is a big fan of strong commerce uh, and strong regulation of commerce. But the globalized world nowadays means that you know certain decisions are imposed on America rather than being made by America. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. So. So let's segue into the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. Uh, Yes. Uh, Law without teeth is just words on paper, uh, is basically what he's saying here. Uh, Laws are a dead letter without courts to expound upon them and define their truth and meaning and operation. So once again, courts are giving life to the the laws that are passed and enacted, is how Hamilton Mm -hmm. phrases it. Yeah. And again... It's not quite as self-serving as his, you know, popular sovereignty argument, strong yeah. state um, argument. But uh, this again, you could tell, you could understand why Hamilton's pushing this forward because of a lot of his frustrations um, in trying to get the nation on an even keel, mm-hmm. and you know, s- state representatives to the or, to the uh, Confederation Congress standing in the way. Yeah really blocked that you know getting the army paid etc and again and also when the congress when the you know national authority would tell the states to do something the states would just ignore it and because the only judiciary was that same confederate congress that confederation congress that they were ignoring in the first place then not you know there nothing get done yeah um i can see why hamilton is would very much be a fan of a strong unified national judiciary a federal judiciary, yes, and yes, uh, you know, and and this one, uh, I don't, I mean, I completely agree with him on. I don't, I don't really have much to criticize him on or on this argument itself. I, I, I guess I felt like, if nothing else, this was almost natural, a natural position for him to take because, you know, uh, coming from their prior judicial bodies. And this is the arguments that were made in Marbury versus Madison, right? Well, of course, this is what the judiciary does. They expound upon and give meaning to and interpret statutes, and we apply them to different fact patterns. And I mean, that was that was the arguments were made in the very first Supreme mm-hmm. Court cases to what the role of the judiciary would be in the under the new United States under this Constitution, and and they just mm-hmm. said, well, that's our tradition for Europe. Why would we not do that? Was sort of the response. And and here again, I mean, I just think that. Hamilton, Madison, Jay were all in that cut from that same cloth, and they would have that same sort of mindset. I mean, to say that a judiciary couldn't or shouldn't interpret or breathe life into the words of a statute and to apply it to a fact pattern and you know give it meaning, mm-hmm. uh, you might as well tell them the sun's not going to rise tomorrow morning. Like, I mean, it just would be—I I can envision it be so um, at odds with everything that they would know and accept uh, and believe mm-hmm. in that for them to take any other position would be. Um, just incomprehensible for the uh, for them uh, for them to take some sort of opposing view. So it seemed natural to them. It seems natural to me because again, you know, this is the world. You know, the judiciary that we've grown up with. Um, it's so, and, and the reality we've all been in. So I don't, I don't know how to, how to really consider. Well, it's easy, it, you know, to see this is the the yeah. clear right answer because yeah. you're reading Hamilton paper. Yeah, That's the <laughs> paper is. Hamilton papers are written in such a way that there's only the way of Hamilton. Yeah. All other ways are stupid. <laughs> you know, there is no second side. You're either for him or you're his enemy. Mm-hmm. That's Hamilton. You know, and it's an. I was amused in reading this paper because I'm thinking to myself, 
Yeah, I can I can see Madison missing from this one because <laughs> Hamilton, you could tell he is true believer, gung ho. This is the way to go. Anybody who doesn't want to go this way is an idiot. This is going to result in nothing but good things if you do this. Whereas Madison, I'm starting to detect this undertone of he, like Hamilton, also believes that a stronger, more unified national government is the way to go. But you, with with Madison, mm-hmm. you, you get the hints, reading between the lines and seeing some of his aside comments, you get the sense that Madison understands that this could go wrong, too. It's oh, yeah. probably the best way... But he's got reservations of, you know, it's a cautious optimism. I think this is going to be the best way, but we've got to stay alert to make sure it doesn't go wrong. Yeah. With Hamilton, there is no, it might go wrong. It's, this is the best way, period, possibly exclamation points. Yeah. Well, Madison was, I mean, it's it's his plan that ultimately got adopted, right? In the Constitution, right? In the, in the am I right on that? The diffusing well, of power? It was the starting point. The starting the point. Yeah. Okay. The first, all right. And and but that that uh, I can't think of the right word. Um, that sort of baseline idea of diffusing of power, right? Uh-huh. Um, between the federal, and, the checks and balance, the checks and yeah. balance between the federal and the state, right? And the idea of federalism, not just nationalism. Uh, it really starts with Matt and with Madison. And you can see it in some of earlier Madison's papers where he he's talking about how this system will protect against factions. And we, we, we talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think we had conversations about, you know, obviously today when we say factions, we think of political parties. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Madison was very much on board with this idea of splitting up of power to frac- fracturing power as a way to protect rights. Uh, and mm-hmm. and Hamilton here is um, being the good Federalist that he is. I'm not going to stop harping on this. <laughs> you know, he's all Federalist for on the verge of he's he's just monarchist. Was. Yeah, you know, actually, and and let me draw. Let me find this this spot because it's funny you say that. Let me. It was the part about the. Um, I'm just going to find it. Yeah, no problem. Can't recall what you might be referring to. He talks. Is it, it in? Yeah, it's, it's in this paper. He talks a bit about how he he goes on and talks about how a, a, a hereditary monarchy actually is is better in in a particular way in this paper than as opposed to a republic. Oh, just, that's a great point. But when he talks about how a hereditary monarch, because he's going to rule, he or she's going to rule their country their entire life, mm-hmm. and then presumably give the country on to their yeah descendants, mm-hmm. they. To quote Louis the Fourteenth, you know, I am the state. Yep. You know, that king thinks of themselves as the country. And the so div- divine they too. Wrong, they all view themselves but, as having been appointed by God, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they might be wrong about what they're what, what regarding whether they're making good or bad decisions. They might be wrong, but they're not going to be corrupt. Yeah, corrupt as being defined by making decisions that serve their individual interests rather than the interests of the states. That's Hamilton's argument there is, you know, by definition, the interests of a monarch and the interests of the states are usually identical because they're going to continue the rule. Whereas a person who, for example, is president, your maximum time you're going to be president is four or eight years. And now you're going to go back to private life. And Mm -hmm. so 
And if you're a congressperson or senator, mm-hmm. you know, you might think, okay, if I get a million dollars to throw this vote this way or decide this issue this way, then I go back to my regular life and I'm a yeah. guy who has a million dollars more. Yeah. And the state's not going to suffer much more from it because they, they think of them, you know, they are tempted to think of individual interests over national mm-hmm. interests. Mm-hmm. That was the critique given there. That was, yeah. Although I put a counter critique and say, I think there's plenty of examples in history where even there was a monarch, their national interests and their individual interests were different. He misses the mark because, for example, a lot of these, you know, the Habsburgs or the, uh, the Hohenzollerns or whoever you have as a monarch, they had a number of countries under their control. And so, for example, the rulers of England also ruled over parts of France for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so England never really gave a damn about land in France. Mm-hmm. You know, that was France. They didn't want it. But there was plenty of English kings who took a bunch of English men over to die in France mm-hmm. or land that was not at all English and never would be, but it was mm-hmm. part of the monarch's Norman lands. Mm-hmm. And so I think he glosses over that. But his larger point, though, I understand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the corruption factor being bigger when there's more identifiable, High- separate individual and national interests. A higher propensity for for the uh, uh, corruption in the Republic versus the, the king himself being corrupted. Um, exactly. Or king or queen being corrupted, being bought off by some other power, um, I think yeah. was his Because was when his you point. are the state, you know, the state's money is yours and vice versa. Yeah, and you're going to want that. You're going to want your rule to continue. Uh, yeah. Um, and, that's, and if the state weakens, you weaken yeah. because – you have all the state's assets are your assets. Yeah. But I wanted to hit on one last point, I think, regarding this paper, mm-hmm. and that is this. When I was again, when I'm reading this paper, you know, all the, all four of these issues where he's talking about the need for greater national power, you know, national commerce regulation, national military regulation, national supreme court, um, national popular sovereignty, you know, nation, 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 all power to the core, all power to the nation, not the states. It's funny to me because it wasn't that many papers back that the the whole theme of the paper was, like, oh, don't worry. When we become a stronger nation under the Constitution, mm-hmm. there's going to still be all these powers reserved to the states that the federal power is not going to get involved with at all. All kinds of civil rules, civil regulations, criminal rules, criminal regulations that – that's always going to be the domain of the states, it's, and mm-hmm. people are going to be much more affected by them in the everyday sense. And this paper, it like that. It's like that former paper point didn't even happen. Yeah. Especially with the progression of time, because even if he was being sincere here, especially in relation to things like the Supreme Court and the Commerce Clause, at the time he wrote it, maybe the Commerce Clause and the Supreme Court really didn't reach down into people's lives too much. And affect their everyday affairs, but here, you know, here we are in 2018. I think that there are few people in any state that are not affected by every day by rules, uh, pa- you know, pa- by statutes, national statutes mm-hmm. promulgated under the authority of the Commerce Clause, and by Supreme oh, yeah. Court decisions that affect them every day. And it's just funny that we have Hamilton and. And Madison, who not long ago have stressed, oh, don't worry about the national power. 
most things are not going to be touched by it. It's only going to be these things you don't really care about every day. Mm-hmm. But then you get to this paper, there seems to be a lot. You know, they plant this tree in this paper. Mm-hmm. You know, the military, the commerce, the Supreme Court, the the whole way of you know rulers are elected. They plant this tree that bears fruit down the road mm-hmm. that affects everybody a whole lot. And even the most isolated area of Wyoming, you're going to be affected by the Commerce Clause. Yep. yep. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it, it is. It is. I. Uh, and we've talked we've talked a lot about that in some other papers about um, that maybe state and local governments are just humming along so well and so efficiently that the, your 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 attention is more focused on the federal level now than what it was a hundred years mm-hmm. ago. Um, you know, you don't ever really think like, oh, my house is on fire. Is anybody going to show up? Or, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it snowed. Is anyone going to plow the roads? I mean, I know sometimes it may feel like that, but I mean, in reality, yeah. I mean, the trucks are out there. They're moving. You don't really, you're not worried about it. There's potholes. Well, someone will fix them. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> but not major politics, shifts. No, no. So um, the uh, he ends on this, this idea that he's really, one last, I think, big criticism he has of the. Uh, um, Articles of Confederation was that sort of like, you know, in the end of the day, the Articles of Confederation weren't ratified by the people. And and this is going to be ratified by the yeah. people, all right? And and that's it's just going to uh, bless it, so to speak, with a, with a more, um, make it more valid, right? Because the people will have done this and, and not the other way around. Um, yeah. And so therefore, uh, it, it will be more meaningful and will last and it will be better. Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> it's better because that's what they're doing and they want to paint it as better. Yeah. It's not, you know, again, one wonders how Hamilton's position would have been different if it looked like the state legislatures would have been for the Constitution and the majority of the people would have been against it. Mm-hmm. Because in reality, you know, a major reason that it was the way it was is because they – the framers had an idea that the individual, the state legislatures were going to be against it. And so they had to go directly to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I just feel like it's Hamilton, yeah. you know, making a virtue out of a necessity, yeah. so to speak. And he makes that point right after uh, a little bit earlier, he talks about like, look, if you leave it under the articles of confederation, um, it's either going to collapse in upon itself or you're going to continue to prop it up and add to it and add to it and add to it. And you're going to end up with some sort of tyrannical system that is the very thing that the anti-federalists are trying to, you know, get rid of um, yeah. or trying to avert. And then he goes into this idea like, and so we're in the Constitution so much better because it's going to mm-hmm. come – the, the um, validity will flow straight from the people itself. Uh, and that's kind of how he ends the paper. So, um, so yeah, that is uh, paper – Federalist paper number 22. Um, 22. Uh, in the books uh, – and hopefully everybody enjoyed listening to that and this, this summation. I don't have anything else on this, Carrie, unless you had any other closing thoughts. I have no other closing thoughts. No other thoughts. All right. Well, <laughs> I can't even speak coherently, so no other closing thoughts. All right. We're all, we're all tapped out then. <laughs> right. Very well. Well, thank uh, you for joining us once again. Yes, we'll thank you. in paper 24. 23. See? There you go. 23. 23. <laughs> we might not see him in 23. Try right. to come back in 23, but definitely come, come back, back for 24. 24. There, there you go. All right. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks.